This is Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. Hi, I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Carol Masser. Welcome to the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week. Over the next couple of hours, we're going to bring you news of the week, insights from the magazine, and a lot more. So much more. A man who went from fixing hearing aids to now a billionaire owner, founder, entrepreneur, philanthropist, one of the largest suppliers of hearing aids. It's an around-the-corner story. It's a fascinating story, one of my favorites this week, plus a murder mystery series about inflation. It's this week's cover story. It's a really fascinating read, and it really digs into why central bankers around the world, why the Fed is scratching its head over inflation, and why it matters, and maybe why it's different this time around. It's an awesome Peter Coy story. It's a must-read. But first, Carol, this feature story, really fascinating. The Boy Scout of America decided to become just scouts, and the Girl Scouts said, wait, what? There's a lawsuit going on right now between the two of them. Not quite sure how it's going to play out. And what's also interesting is you get a deep dive into these two organizations. They're more than 100 years old, and they really have taken different paths as they move into the 21st century. We caught up with Claire Suddeth. She wrote the story, and Joel Weber, the editor of Bloomberg Businessweek. Joel, i got to start with you, because I'm just thinking, all right, so Claire comes to you and says, Joel, I want to do a story on Brussels. But um, Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts, and you say what? What's your favorite cookie? <laughs> Samoas. Samoa, yeah. <laughs> no, that's I a good one. Oh, that's yeah. second place. So he, wasn't, we're, he wasn't asking you. He was, he was actually <laughs> answering I mean, the question. You're like, Samoas. That's, <laughs> that's how I feel about this story is like, you, you, you we start talking about scouts in general, and we, we will spend a little talk, time talking about scouts. But if you talk about Girl Scouts, and we're still in the middle of cookie season. Um, this is big business and, and there's this greater controversy that Claire started to tease out a little bit. And whenever you have cookies and a fight over cookies and brands and what the nature of scouts is, it just leads to magical places. And that's what Claire was able to do. So tell us about your story. Well, you may have heard that this year the Boy Scouts officially let in girls for the first time for their their original 109-year-old program, and that would then make them Girl Scouts, which the Girl Scouts don't like because they have that trademarked. Right. So now you have a lawsuit where the Girl Scouts are suing the Boy Scouts, and so the article is basically the story of these 100-year-old institutions, where they got to, you know, where they are now, and where they're going in the future, which is to court. Right. And one of the things that has gotten us to this point is that the Girl Scouts, largely fueled by that cookie business, have done exceedingly well as an organization, especially financially. The Boy Scouts, not so much. How did they diverge like this? Yeah, well, it's funny because they both started um, by this like British lieutenant general in 1908. He started... um, Boy Scouting in the UK, and then it came over to the US a couple years later, and a couple years after that, you get the Girl Scouts in the US. So they have the same origin story, but the Boy Scouts have always been sort of focused on, you know, preparing boys to be young men. Uh, Originally, it was like to prepare them for military duty, camping, outdoors activities, survivalist techniques, that sort of thing. And Girl Scouts have that. But they very quickly moved to other sorts of activities and started funding everything through cookies, which turned out to be huge business. Today, how, how big of a business? Today, they are the second largest cookie seller in the U.S. after only Oreo. Which is wild. So, and it brings in, do we, do we have any kind of idea? Yes. Yeah, so I know they, it's hard to get they an won't exact figure. Say, um, the, the figure that gets bandied about a lot is $700 million a year, but it's also 20 years old and every Girl Scout yeah so every Girl Scout that I've talked to has said um, if she's been in the program long enough within the past like five years or so everything has moved online they have an app so you can just download the cookie app find your nearest Girl Scout who's actively selling cookies and just like run down the street and get cookies so they (laughs) are selling way more than they used to I am so into that. <laughs> yeah. It, it, so what, what we kind of got into in the story, Claire, with your reporting is the identity question of like, you end up with these two brands that are kind of doing the same thing, but for basically two different sexes or genders. And now there's this brand confusion. How do you think this lawsuit's going to uh, play out? Well, when you read the complaint, you see that essentially what has happened is you know, you have all of these like local troops and local councils that now have to put out flyers advertising for these new troops that are going to have girls in them. 
and some of those flyers say Girl Scouts on them. And it's quite confusing, and I talked to a number of people who said that they, they had no idea what troop was what and what was happening. So I talked to some experts, and they said that they'll probably be able to change to Scouts because it's a generic term, and there was this landmark case with um, Nabisco and Kellogg fighting over the term shredded wheat in 1938. And right. President. Yeah. <laughs> um, so they'll probably be able to change to Scouts, but um, the issue is going to be over how they phrase it and, you know, just avoiding the confusion. Do we think that there could be an M&A opportunity within Scouts? Possibly, maybe. Yeah. Jason, you know something about that. If you're if you're in an MA, put an MA hat on. Yeah, can Girl Scouts take over Scouts? It they've feels got like the money. It. I mean, that's you. the I thing. Like it's how a, you it, did it that way. It's a yeah. leverage buyout, right? Yeah. I mean, they they've got the uh, they've although got cookies. Well, it's a leverage buyout, although really a distressed asset. Uh, yeah. at the end of the day, this is a buyout Scouts. opportunity. Scouts. Yeah, is a distressed Scouts asset. is a distressed asset. Yeah. Uh, Girl Scouts have all the cash flow they need. Yeah. yeah. Well, the Boy Scouts are considering bankruptcy actually because they have See, there you uh, go. hundreds of lawsuits that they're facing. That's what's I think we need to take this to but, some bankers, Joel. But, but that's what's fascinating. The Girl Scouts have figured out kind of the model going forward, right, in terms of revenue. And they're also doing programs. It's not just about, you know, baking badges anymore. It's about coding and all the and preparing girls kind of for the future in the workforce. Yeah. The, the current CEO of the Girl Scouts um, used to work at NASA, actually, in their jet propulsion labs. And then she worked at Dell, Apple, IBM. So she's really into STEM. Love this. Um, so Girl Scouts has taken all of this cookie money and created all of these STEM badges. That's Claire Suddeth and Joel Weber. I love that story. A lot of twists and turns. And listen, cookies, it's a big business. It's a huge business. And I thought it was fascinating to see how these two different organizations kind of started at the same time, but how they've really taken different paths going forward. And while you've got the Scouts maybe thinking about bankruptcy and the Girl Scouts, they're making a lot of money on those cookies. So after the Fukushima nuclear meltdown in Japan in 2011, the U.S. Nuclear Commission told U.S. nuclear power plant operators to reevaluate their flood risk. And we now have some of the conclusions, Jason, of that review. Chris Lavell, one of our crack reporters looking at climate change, he's been with us over the past few months talking about this effect all across the United States the nuclear edition of this is really startling. Chris, tell us what you found. So, as you mentioned, after Fukushima, federal regulators told nuclear plant operators, do two things. Figure out, look at your plants, figure out what their current flood risk is, and also seismic, but flood risk. What level of flooding you should expect using the latest technology, best projections, and accounting for climate change. Also, Tell us what your plants, many of which are quite old, decades, half a century in some cases, tell us what those plants were built to account for, what level of flooding you were thinking of when you first built them, and if there's a gap, tell us how you'll close that gap and, and reduce the risk of some Fukushima-type unlikely but possible flooding event happening. Uh, and, and we looked through all this documentation over the course of years, and we found that in the majority of cases, these plants had at least one kind of flooding risk that exceeded what they were designed for. Uh, and critics say that even with that information, the commission, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, hasn't gone far enough in pushing these plants to address that risk. There's a range of critiques. Some people say the plant should be redesigned, which would cost a fortune. Others say, okay, you can, you can just mitigate with uh, you know, some, a variety of measures. Some of those even haven't been, up, haven't been necessitated by the commission. So no one seems all that happy with the outcome of the process. And you know what's interesting, Chris? I feel like this is akin to just upping your insurance coverage, right? Like it may not happen. Storms of the century or storms of a century, you know, we say hasn't happened, but we find the frequency of them is happening more and more. This is a case of nuclear facilities just being a little bit more careful. And this is kind of what um, the commission is asking them to do. Yeah, it's, it's really important to note that the, the whole point of this exercise, this post-Fukushima sort of analysis in the U.S., is to look at what's the most extreme event, mm -hmm. flooding or otherwise, that, that, we, that is possible enough that is worth accounting for. And the industry makes this point well. They say, you know, in any high-tech industry, there's always a question of how safe is safe enough. There's no perfect answer for that. Um, but at least they're trying to get the data by finding out, well, give us your best guess about what level of rain-led flooding or storm surge flooding or ice melt flood or dam failure flood. It's been a really thorough process, but their criticism isn't around the process so much as what happened afterwards. In right. January, the commission said that the, the step 
steps that plants had taken to address these updated risks would not be mandatory. They'd remain voluntary, uh, and critics, including former commissioners, say that's not good enough. And there is this element here of kind of self-policing that I think as you read this story, you think, well, what's their incentive necessarily to, and, and you alluded to the high, high cost associated with retrofitting or more, even more severe measures, you know, these guys aren't deeply incentivized to, to maybe give the worst case scenario. Yeah, look, incentives are tough, and, and I think, in, in to be fair to the industry, they've got a pretty strong incentive to avoid a Fukushima-type meltdown, sure. because as we saw in Japan and also in Germany, they can lead to the entire industry being shut down in a country if public opinion sways against it. But I think there's a, a, an insistence in this country and a reliance on regulation, especially for sort of potentially dangerous industries. Uh, so I think what's important here is it's an example of, of the way in which climate change makes regulation more difficult, right? You've got an existing system where you try and balance risks and costs, and then climate change sort of throws it off whack, right? Because you've got these additional risks that are getting worse, but no one knows exactly how fast they're getting worse. Right. And then also this, this separate question of, well, what do you want to do? You can't reduce the risk of something bad happening to zero. How much are you willing to spend for that marginal increase in safety. And that's tough because, A, there's no good answer, and B, the cost ultimately gets passed on to the public, right? Anything that nuclear plants spend on these safety upgrades in some way or another will reach the public, either through their shareholders or, or ratepayers. So it's one of those things where you, the country seems to be struggling through it because there's no model for this. There's no good answer, but people are at least saying, let's think about whether what we've done before is enough. And the consensus seems to be we've got to try something that's more aggressive, but no one can agree how aggressive you need <laughs> right. to be. Well, what's fascinating, and I want to get into the political element, because you talk about you know, once this review was done, the analysis came out and, and uh, Bloomberg got a lot of information um, about, you know, the exposure in terms of uh, flood risk. The owners of the nuclear power plants, and this is your, your reporting, said that rather than redesign their plants to address the increased flood risks, that it would be enough to store emergency diesel generators, pumps, and other equipment mm -hmm. in on-site concrete bankers. The commission agreed with the industry's findings, right? And they said emergency equipment was adequate. And then this January, the commission ruled that equipment would be voluntary. What mm -hmm. happened? Mm -hmm. is, is there a political pressure? What happened here? Because that seemed like an so, easy fix, an easy insurance mm -hmm. policy, maybe cost a little bit more, but it could be done and everybody would be safe or safer. And then all of a sudden, it sounds like everything changed. Yeah, so the current, the current majority on the commission, it's a five-member commission, three of whom appointed by, by Republicans, and the current majority said that the current system is safe enough. They said they don't have evidence that it's necessary to impose this requirement, this new requirement on plant owners. The two minority members, Democratic appointees, disagreed. Uh, and there's this question of how much of that is just a function of the facts, and how much of it is this sort of new deregulatory philosophy we've seen under the Trump administration, whether it's nuclear or some other uh, and again, it's hard to separate the facts here from sort of the, the baggage, the philosophy someone brings to it. Uh, the people who were saying this isn't enough tend to be environmentalists. Uh, they, I've talked to them at length. They know their stuff. Um, but their frame of reference is a priority of safety. And I think the frame of reference for industry, and arguably that's shared by the current commission, is let's keep this business working. And this is a really tough time for nuclear, right? They're under a lot of pressure mm -hmm. from the natural gas industry, from falling natural gas right. prices. And they're under pressure from environmentalists, right? The nuclear industry has never really won favor with environmentalists, despite their claim, and this is true, that they provide more carbon-free energy than any other source. Right. That hasn't really gotten them any points with environmentalists. So they're sort of under siege on all sides. And you, you can pick up on that by talking to the companies that are big in this industry. Uh, they feel like they're always being attacked despite providing power. So I think, right. I think the, main, the main takeaway here is there's no good answer, but, but we, it, we haven't found a balance yet that people are happy with. So that's Chris Flavel joining us from Toronto. Really well-told story. He follows climate change and the impact it's having on countries, on cities, on the world, and on industries. This story in the politics section, I thought it was just such a smart one. It is because it's a government story, it's an economic story, yeah. and also one about very specific companies and consumers. 
So, Jason, it's got Facebook's attention, and some are saying it's the next global big thing in social media. It's called TikTok. It's made in China, and it may be the most valuable startup in the world. T-I-K-T-O-K. All the kids are doing it. (laughs) Our favorite arbiter of all things new in the world. (laughs) It's kind of a kid. Max Chafkin here with us in New York. What's going on with this? So, so TikTok, as you say, T-I-K-T-O-K, no relation to Bloomberg's TikTok service, uh, is a an app that it looks a little bit like Vine, a little bit like Snapchat, a little bit like Instagram Stories. Um, it's basically let, lets kids do live streams and music videos. Um, very big with the tweens and and teens. Um, and as you said, it's it's owned by a Chinese company. And what makes this super interesting is it's the first time, really, like one of these. Chinese internet companies has had a a hit um, outside of the mainland. And that's a really important point, I feel like, because we talk a lot about Alibaba, we talk a lot about Tencent, but, but those are essentially, as big as they are, ultimately domestic Chinese companies right. in some ways. Yeah, and I mean, the Chinese market is so huge that obviously you can build a, a huge company uh, just on the backs of those users. Um, wh- wh- what's sort of interesting here is TikTok, uh, which kind of grew out of a Chinese app that was launched in, in 2016, uh, was was sort of grown through the acquisition of this other company called Musical.ly, which was kind of like the last hit app of the moment. And if you're a user of Facebook or Snapchat, you've seen, or YouTube, you've seen just a deluge of ads trying to get you to check out this new app, and and people are doing it. In January, according to um, one of the analytics uh, trackers, Mm -hmm. uh, TikTok was the biggest app in the app stores in the U.S., which is just stunning, you know, ahead of Instagram, ahead of Snapchat. You talk about the marketing. This is one stat that uh, stood out for me for the story. Over the past three months, I guess roughly, 13% of all Facebook ads that ran on Android phones were for TikTok. Right. That's a lot of advertising. That's a WOA. That's a big push, right, to get users. Yeah, it's a huge push, and 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 like you said, this company has raised a, a, an enormous amount of money, uh, you know, mostly from Chinese investors, uh, and you know, the valuation I think uh, as of last year was seventy five billion, right. which puts it, you know, in Uber territory or just ahead of Uber uh, as as the most valuable startup. So what's uh, Facebook world. saying? Like, oh, no problem. Well, <laughs> I think got to be watching. It's this. fair to say I, I, they probably have a room full of people watching this. Uh, uh, so during the Cambridge Analytica hearings last year, you, you may remember. Mark Zuckerberg uh, getting into kind of an interesting exchange with a senator who said who was talking about Zuckerberg's journey from the dorm room to to becoming this global tech mogul, and he said, you know, only in America, right? And Zuckerberg said, well, you know, there's some pretty impressive companies in China, and I think, you know, obviously he's talking about Tencent, um, Baidu, but I think he's also talking about TikTok. And uh, last year, Facebook created a knockoff service called Lasso, which didn't really uh, didn't go anywhere, but it kind of shows that the company had interest. Well. It's interesting, too, because I read this story with great interest, in part because I have got a couple teenagers, and the younger of the teenagers definitely looks at TikTok. So I was sort of talking to him about this, trying to be cool, saying that, like, uh, we're doing this story about TikTok. And I mentioned Lasso, and he's like, that's not a thing. I don't even know what you're talking about, which is the same thing you heard from one of the TikTok creators that you interviewed for the story. Yeah, and the, the, uh, the, the interesting thing here, though, is that... Uh, that Facebook, you know, they created this this knockoff service, but there, I would bet that they would try again and yeah. again and again, which because right. that's exactly right. what happened uh, to Snap. As you said, uh, the the main uh, character in the story is this uh, young woman, Sydney Jade. You know, she is not on Facebook or Snapchat. Um, and, you know, she is, uh, you know, TikTok, she's all in TikTok, all, all TikTok all the time. As we say in the story, five hours a night, uh, which is you know great news for TikTok. Uh, <laughs> I think it probably. Uh, would give you know parents pause to think about uh, you know how much time their kids are spending on these things. Well, let's talk about that because TikTok taps into tons of data, right? And it's using AI, artificial intelligence, to kind of uh, you know I guess manipulate that data, shoot you videos that you want. But this, all of this information and data troves, if you will, that they're collecting has caught the attention of U.S. regulators. Yeah. So there's a few things to unpack here. Um, you know, it's not That's like why we have you. It's not like TikTok. <laughs> <Yeah>. Sorry. <laughs> so it's not like TikTok. TikTok is just sort of an American.
American-style social network that's taking off in America. It really is Chinese through and through. And and one of the ways it's Chinese is is it has this you know sort of data-first uh, idea where where rather than focusing on social connections, which is kind of the backbone of Twitter, Facebook, Snapchat, it's focusing on AI and 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 recommending content uh, to you, which is exactly how its apps worked in China. It's also much more um, into kind of censorship and privacy. There is no controversial content on TikTok. There's it's not a it's not a political app, and um, it's on that it's on that data that AI component that has caused regulators in the U.S. to be be concerned. That's Max Chafkin. A very well-told story and really important, as I mentioned mm-hmm. in our conversation with him. I have some secondhand experience <laughs> with TikTok, and uh, it really is catching on. We're getting assist from your teenage sons on this one, but it is fascinating. It might be the most valuable startup in the world, uh, but you do wonder about its future going forward since social media companies can really pop and then they can come undone. All right, so I know I already want to sit down uh, with the individual who is the subject of this next story. He's an entrepreneur, creator of something most of us will probably need someday, and yet this entrepreneur is looking to pitch his product for those who don't really need it. I have to say, I read this story over the weekend, and I just kept turning and turning and turning. I mean, it's such a tale, such a saga. Josh Dean, he is the author. He's here with us. You went to Minnesota. You witnessed it all. Take us to the beginning. How did you even discover this company? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, actually, it goes back to I did another story in Minneapolis a few years ago about a guy named Mike Lindell, the My Pillow guy. Yeah, right. you might yes, remember. We talked to you about it. So it was actually through that very small world of Minnesota businesses that I, you know, some word passed around. The word got around to me. There's this other guy in Minneapolis who you should maybe look at, Starkey, uh, Bill Austin, who's the president and founder of Starkey Hearing Technologies, which is a hearing aid company. So I'm yeah. thinking, God, that sounds boring. Right? <laughs> I mean, you're you're probably sitting there thinking, like, all right, how am I going to pitch this story to business yeah, exactly. week, right? Exactly. Well, it's, yeah. you know, I, I hear from publicists all the time. I'm like, uh, that's not going to work. It's a magazine story. Right. So at first I'm thinking, yeah, a hearing aid company? Like, I mean, great product, I'm sure, but like, who wants to read about a hearing aid company? Well, well, tell us about <laughs> now we all do because of this story. Tell us about Starkey Hearing Technologies, so which is a huge player when it comes to hearing aids. The the only U.S. based hearing aid manufacturer, one of the world's largest. I mean, multi billion dollar company. I think they made eight hundred million last year. They're privately held, so the numbers aren't public. That's other mm. range of what six thousand employees. Um, so this guy, Bill Austin, William Austin. Um, Started a hearing aid company back in the 60s in his basement um, and has grown it into this multi-billion dollar And Goliath. go back to the very right. start, because even the, the the very origins of this business give you a sense of who this guy is. Yeah, he grew up wanting to be Albert Schweitzer. He's like, I think, a spiritual guy, and he wanted to like help humanity and be a... And he realized that he says... He wanted to he, be a doctor. He wanted to be a doctor. He, yeah. Yeah, Schweitzer, he wanted to go out into the third world, or, or, or at least a small town, and be like the guy who changes lives. But he says he, he had this vision. And he was making money fixing hearing aids or helping a guy who made hearing aids. And he watched what it did putting a hearing aid in someone's ear. And he said he saw how it transformed a life. And he thought, like, if I'm a doctor, maybe I can only change one life a day. If you're lucky, you know, hearing aids, I can do this like 10 and 20 and 30 and 1,000 times. Basically, he has this vision. Literally, he has a vision. So he says he sees a saying on the side of a bus. I don't remember the exact saying. He goes home and he sits on his bed and he gives himself a pep talk, which is like, being a doctor's great, but like if I really want to change a lot of lives, I can bring hearing to the world. Um, you know, it's hard to hack check someone's vision that's forty years old, but right. this is how he tells it, and he starts this company out of his basement. Well, I have visions. Jason has visions. I mean, this guy really has visions. I'm not making fun of him, but this is part of kind of who this person is, right? He things come to him. Very much so. He, he's. I mean, I think it's fair to call him an eccentric. Also, a very Christian spiritual guy who yeah. really believes that he has visions. And you know, again, that's not the kind of thing you can fact check. But Josh, talk about the hearing aid industry, right? Um, Because it used to be a bunch of smaller companies, right? And now it's really been whittled down to a few big players, and Starkey's among them. There were like somewhere between 50 and 100 at one point. Like Sears was in it. RCA was in it. Everybody made hearing aids because it was just like a little, you know, not little. There were these big things that you put behind your ear. Not inexpensive. Not inexpensive, but... You were kind of embarrassed to get one. You thought of it as like, that's something your grandmother has. And there, everybody was in the business. Over time, technology's come into it. And it, so the field has really winnowed. I mean, it's down to literally five companies now, Starkey being one of the largest. And so from a, when he started, he's one of 70, 100 companies. 
he survives all of the winnowing of the field down to now he's one of five. And the way he did that um, is, well, through good management, but also technology. He's right. always been a kind of, um, he's not a technologist personally. I mean, he's kind of self-taught, but he's always pushed innovation in a field where I don't think there's a lot of innovation being pushed. And as you look around the corner, I want to talk about the company in a second, but but I want to get to one of the most interesting elements of this from a technology perspective, which is they are rethinking the entire mm -hmm. relationship and the entire purpose in some ways of this thing that goes in and around your ear. Right. And probably everybody's always thought of it that way. But like he claims that Austin says that back in, I mean, I think he first vision was in the 70s or the 80s. And then again in 98, he had a very clear vision that what the future of the hearing aid was not a hearing aid. It was a communications device. And he thought, well, if it's in your ear, you should be able to get all kinds of medical data from it. And what if you could translate languages? And all these things that were not possible in 1998, he says that he saw that coming. I mean, mm -hmm. of course, now here we are 20 years later. That's finally what they're doing. So, what Starkey's realized is that this is a really good place to take body rate readings, heart rate, you know, um, temperature. Well, when you take your kid to the pediatrician these days, right. that's how they take the temperature. Exactly, right. And now with Bluetooth and some of these other technologies, you can connect your phone to it. So they looked at all the various ways that they could leverage a piece of like digital tech that's got chips and sensors. All of these things have been micro, you know, the more the smaller and smaller and smaller now. Be mostly because of your iPhone, all these sensors are tiny. They've turned the hearing aid into a kind of little computer. It's fascinating. I have to say, Josh, when I read this story, and I'm thinking about wearables, right? We're into wearables. We've all got our watches and stuff. And I think about Apple wanting to be in healthcare and some other companies. I thought, oh my God, I wonder if this is like a company Apple will buy ultimately, because this is a way to ultimately get so much healthcare information, right? right? And the guy they hired to, to run this project, so the new hearing aid's called Olivio AI, which is artificial intelligence. They hired a, a guy who headed a very innovative group at Intel called Perceptual Computing. They mm -hmm. did like drones and like the, the very tip of the spear technology stuff at Intel. Um, they brought him in to run this project. Yeah, exactly that. Thinking like this is literally, you know, you can think of it like a little iPhone type wow. evolution in the year. And you wonder now, and I asked him that question, like, are your competitors of the future going to be like Apple or, or Google? or Because you're like... Probably putting technology in a place that Apple wasn't thinking about, yeah. right? Or if they were thinking about it, they didn't really know how to do it. And they don't have essentially the existing installed base and a lot of the right. uh, a lot of the elements. So let's talk about that guy for a second because his entree into the company, as it were, is also illustrative as to who Bill Austin is right. and how the company operates, right? I mean, all of it is Bill's. You know, he's a billionaire owner of a, a multi-billion-dollar company. I, I've dealt with a lot of these people. They're not typically accessible. They're not, you know, their time is highly regimented. You don't get to see them for more than a few minutes at a time. Like, I was getting a tour with the current president, and we ran into Bill in his, what he calls his office, where he, like, tunes hearing aids. And, like, we literally couldn't get him to stop talking. We were, like, trying to walk out because I had an interview set for them the next day. And we spent, like, 40 minutes there. This same thing happens with the CTO prospect. He comes in from Intel for an interview thinking he's going to have a room full of headhunters, all the top yeah. management people. Right. And then Bill just kind of wanders in, hijacks, not hijacks, I think just starts asking him questions. And the two of them kind of like mind meld and talk for like hours, I think the rest of the day. And then again at a barbecue. So he sort of just takes over the hiring process. And I think by the end, it's like, yeah, this is the guy. He gets what I'm trying to do. And that guy, Achen Bowmilk, to be fair, like I think when he went on this interview, he probably didn't think I'm definitely going to go work for a hearing aid tech. I work <laughs> Right. I work at Intel. I work at Intel in Silicon Valley. I'm going to Minneapolis to a hearing aid right. company. It's like, okay, like, so, sure, let's see how this goes. Yeah, there's actually there's one weird bit of like kismet that I didn't have space for in the story. Back when he was when um, Achen was in business school, he had he had to do a paper where he profiled three influential. Um, founders of companies. I think one was Bill Gates, one was some, maybe it was Michael Dell or something. The third one was Bill Austin, just because he had heard the story of how this one guy started a company in his basement uh, and built it. Into, but he totally so forgot cool. about it. So when the headhunter calls him, he's like, yeah, that sounds great. It's a hearing aid company. I'll think about it. You know, he probably didn't think about it. Then he says he went home and he was telling his wife about it. And he was like, 
oh my God, Bill Austin, I know who that is. Like, I'm got to go on this interview. I have to go to talk to this guy. guy. And that sounds like the sort of thing that Bill Austin would say, it's meant to be. Exactly, this right. is all preordained. Well, it's not just a hearing aid company. It's not just, I mean, Bill Austin, as you got, you point out, six presidents, two popes, Nelson Mandela, Frank Sinatra. <laughs> these are people that he has personally Person. fitted hearing aids for. I'm leaving out people. Paul Newman, Steve Martin, Elton John. Well, and wasn't, I mean, the list There was a killing. day where there were two <laughs> quite disparate people, <laughs> like, in the office, yeah, right? it was a Dalai Lama and um, Gene Simmons. Gene Simmons, and then another day was <laughs> Hugh Hefner and this famous megachurch pastor. Right. But okay, so we're this is a really cool story. You can tell that Jason and I really love it. But they also went through a really tough time. Yeah. So actually, <laughs> sorry one to of, be like that. Wah wah wah. Yeah. I mean, that was the first thing that interested me because I hadn't. There's not a lot to read about Austin. I mean, you can read a little bit. He's not a super public guy. There yeah. have not been profiles of him or the company. They're very private. So when I was brought into the story and I started looking into it, it was like, oh wait a second, there's a whole scandal around this. Yeah. So I thought, I hear I'm going to go and do a story about a company and scandal. So some of the top executives had been caught defrauding the company, basically taking money, like just flat out Lot, stealing mil- flat out millions stealing. of dollars. $20 million, it yeah. seems like. And also, like, recruiting Wall on the payroll, recruiting others to go and start a competitor. Various things that are obviously in clear violation of your fiduciary duty. I mean, we're talking president, human resources chief, CFO, like, C-level, C-suite employees. This is a conspiracy inside the company to defraud the company. Yeah, I referred to it as a palace coup at one point. It's not quite the right term, because I don't think they were trying to take over his company, but they were definitely... They were trying to create their own palace. Exactly, right. But Uh, I do wonder, Josh, if by by that happening, because they brought in a bunch of new senior executives, including that CTO from Intel, like, is this what kind of is moving the company to the next stage? Well, again, you're talking about... And made Bill Austin Austin kind of look at his company. Yeah, and his sort of divine intervention idea. I mean, he now chooses to look at it as like, I need that needed to happen to get us where we were. That's Josh Dean. I love this story. He goes to Minneapolis not really knowing what to expect, sort mm-hmm. of turned on to this company by someone else in the area. He does great work for us. It really brought us a tale here. Yeah, I thought it was going to be a story about controversy at the company, which it was a little bit, but so much more. We've got a story about the city of Bogota, which has recently been awash in refugees, really welcoming in a lot of immigrants from Venezuela. But it's also created maybe some questions and some problems. Indeed. All right. So much going on in that part of the world. Ethan Bronner has been following it so closely. So what led you to this story? When I went last year, I for didn't the... fall asleep on your story. <laughs> just on the movie, yeah. so forgive me. Wow, I know. I went last year to help uh, with the election of right. the new president last May, and I had actually lived in Bogota forty years ago as a teacher in my twenties, and uh, you know, became from. I knew the city a little bit, and then was amazed at its change, and also got to know people while I was there for the political story, and began to see as I followed the Venezuela story how many Venezuelan exiles end up in Bogota. And then there's a kind of a counter-espionage situation going on. There are Cubans, there are Russians. One of the guys I went to see in uh, Colombia when I was there a year ago told me, amazingly, that he had spent two days with Sergei Skripal. This is the Russian former double agent that MI6 had sent him to the Colombians two or three years ago to help them figure out what to do with all these extra Russians who were spying in the place. No one had ever told this story. At that time, he said, you can't use it. When I went back this time, I said, please, I got to use it. He goes, okay, but leave me out of it. Right. So it's in our story. <laughs> how did this happen? Like, how, yeah. how does Bogota end up in, in this place? How does Colombia end up right. uh, in well, this part position? Of, it, of course, is that something like a million and point three immigrants have moved. Refugees have left Venezuela, and this is the next door neighbor. proximity. They've yeah. proximity. And all, the other thing to, not, not to forget is that so many Colombians had moved to Venezuela when it was an oil-rich mm-hmm. sort of paradise. So there's a lot going on there. And, and Colombia is newly relatively stable. I don't yes. want to overstate that because there are risks there. But And so it's After place, many years uh, of being n- the opposite. That's yeah. right. Guerrilla wars, the FARC, these marks guerrillas that had taken over many parts of the country. And so suddenly you have a country which has kind of come into its own in a position to be welcoming of refugees. And unlike, say, Syrian refugees in Germany, they all speak the same language. They have a very similar culture. So there has been a a very generous opening of the doors. Right. And this is not something that, I mean, 
immigration was never an issue for this country. That's correct? right. You, this a, was something I learned as I was there, is that they had never even passed an immigration law because no one ever wanted, wanted to, to move to there. Colombia. That's amazing. You do say, though, that if the flow continues for another year, Venezuela will surpass um, Syria, Syria in the scale of its refugee That's crisis. That's right. That's pretty amazing. It's pretty amazing. I mean, we do believe that if the situation with Maduro, the yeah. president of Venezuela, continues for the next year, that they will reach from three to four now million to five or six million refugees. Ethan, talk about some of the high-profile people, though, that have left Venezuela that are now making their home in Bogota. Right. So there are, for example, the, the former attorney general, prosecutor general's office has now moved to Bogota and is trying to perform its a job. There are there's a kind of uh, exile Supreme Court. Some, several of those justices now live in Bogota. They operate all out of their kitchen tables, and they have kind of mm. Skype sessions. Yeah. And then there are members of the legislature that is no longer really recognized by the government, and they, they're living there. And then there are a lot of military types who are, you know, plotting. So there's a lot going on. And so you talk about these two countries and, and the sort of back and forth that's that's happened. But as you alluded to earlier, this is much bigger than those two two countries as well. The United States obviously has taken a very strong stand. Other countries have taken a strong stand. How does the rest of the world play into this narrative that that's happening? Here? So that's a great question. So I think I do think that um, there are several key points in the world today: North Korea, Syria, Venezuela is not alone, but it has really become a central. Um, uh, superpower rivalry hotspot because the Russians are really resisting the American effort. Mm -hmm. the, the Trump administration, which has not very, got a very active foreign policy, really has taken a deep interest in what's happening in Venezuela. And why do you think that is? I, I just Before we get any further, I want to ask you that question. I think there are several reasons. One is that the whole shift in the region, which was f f focused on kind of leftist populism with Brazil, with Argentina, with Peru, with Venezuela, with Cuba has begun to shift in the last few years, and that fits with the uh, ideology of this administration, which is very conservative, a great believer that socialism has seen its last days mm -hmm. and that we, the United States, need to help push it out of the region. There's also the revitalization of the Monroe Doctrine that this mm -hmm. administration has, without any sense of uh, kind of it being old-fashioned, has said we need to say that, well, maybe in Syria we're not going to be dominant. This is our region, and we are not going to let the Russians push us around here. And with a little bit more work, we can get the Cuban. The, the Cubans play a very big role today right. in, uh, in Venezuela and in Nicaragua. So John Bolton, the national security advisor, has picked Venezuela, Nicaragua, and Cuba as the countries that he views as a kind of troika of terror, as he's called it. And he wants to see the United States play a role in turning this whole region around. That's Ethan Bronner. And I love talking to him about this story, Carol, because his experience is deep here. Mm -hmm. He understands the country and the countries around Venezuela and Colombia from working there four decades ago. He spent a lot of time there recently helping us understand what's going on. Right. And it's really relevant considering the pushback on immigration to see uh, Colombia and Bogota specifically really welcoming in immigrants. It's this week's Remarks. So at one time, the big gun makers, Smith & Wesson, Jason, they were considering a fingerprint lock built into every gun. It sounded like a good idea, and yet it didn't happen. This is the whole idea of a so-called smart gun. Polly Mazins is here with us in New York. A fascinating story, mm -hmm. and maybe one that people aren't so familiar with. The history is fascinating here. Take us back. How does this evolve? Absolutely. So even back in the 90s, the government was starting to think about smart guns. It was still sort of like a futuristic concept, but it was definitely something that was being thought about. The idea is that only the rightful owner of the firearm would be able to use it, unlock it, fire it. Seems so simple. Makes sense. Absolutely. And the initial idea was that either there would be some kind of a grip that would be recognized from your hand that's unique to everybody that could unlock the gun, or you might wear a bracelet that has RFID in it that would be able to unlock it, or the more futuristic way would be like our iPhones where you put your fingerprint on it and that unlocks it. Unfortunately, it basically went absolutely nowhere, despite there being a lot of interest in the idea, particularly 
particularly for law enforcement. They were curious if there was a way to have a firearm that was exclusive to them because that way no one would be able to steal their firearm and use it against them. So why don't we have it? Does it not work? It's a combination of reasons why we don't have it. Part of it is political pushback. Part of it is lobbying through the National Rifle Association and other groups like it. And then part of it is that we've never really had the research and development put in at a really massive level to determine if it would work. When you don't have any major gun makers that already have this infrastructure, that already have these engineers, these manufacturing facilities, putting any money into this, we just don't know if it'll work. So a lot of stakeholders here, Mm -hmm. as you mentioned. Let's talk about the gun makers first. Why don't they uh, have those resources and that infrastructure available? So for that, let's go back to the late 90s when Bill Clinton was president. So at that time, the Clinton administration actually essentially cut a deal with Smith & Wesson, which was one of the oldest, most historic gun makers in the United States, really recognizable name worldwide. They said that they would put in about 2% of revenue, a substantial sum for such a notable gun maker, into finding out whether there was a research and development path for smart guns. The Clinton administration really supported this. There were some folks on both sides of the aisle it supported it, but the NRA did not. They basically said Smith and Wesson was committing, uh, you know, they were being traitors. They weren't being loyal to their base. They weren't being loyal to the NRA. They were siding with the opposition in the Clinton administration. And they put out a call to their members saying, we don't support Smith and Wesson anymore. Essentially overnight, Smith and Wesson saw about 40% of their sales plummet. Wow. And they ended up being sold I mean, for really pennies on the dollar for what they might have been worth a few years later. So I don't get it, too, because there's a study that you cite in their story, and it says nearly half of gun owners in in the United States would consider buying a smart gun. Yeah. Part of the thing with the studies is that they all come from different organizations. So that one is an academic study. Then there are some studies that are, of course, done by the lobbyists that show much lower numbers. But the reality is there's a lot of sort of interest around it. But the people that are the most diehard proponents of these um, political issues, they're either very opposed or very for. So while you might have a lot of sort of middle of the road gun owners who might shoot recreationally or they might have one shotgun in their home, they might feel a little bit more open to it. Mm -hmm. But then you have what we call super owners. Those are the people that have 17 or more firearms on average. It's quite a number. And those are the people that are really spending very big money. Those are the people that might be the most loyal, the biggest givers to the NRA. If the NRA says, we're not on board with this 100%, then that's going to be difficult to sell, even if there's general interest. Right. So tell us about some legislation that came through New Jersey, because a lot of Mm -hmm. this hinges on that particular law. That's absolutely right. So in New Jersey, there was an effort to really bring smart guns forward in the form of legislation. However, the way the legislation was written, it basically stated that if a firearm that's so-called smart is available anywhere in the United States for sale, it must be sold in New Jersey. That would be the firearm that would have to be the main firearm of New Jersey, basically. So what happened is that you saw in California, in Maryland, there were just these relatively small gun stores that started carrying this one particular kind of firearm that the NRA basically tested, and they found that it was somewhat faulty. And in fact, they're a after- A smart gun? A smart gun, yeah. Okay. So it relied on RFID technology, which is basically a bracelet that the owner of the smart gun would wear. They would try to shoot it, and it would either, the NRA said it would either be a little glitchy or faulty, it wouldn't work quite right. Soon thereafter, there were actually other reviews from less partisan organizations that found the same thing. In one case, they found that some magnets could unlock the gun, thereby defeating the smart purpose. So you have these very loyal people, very loyal to the Second Amendment, loyal to the NRA, see this law in New Jersey that says, you're going to make us have to buy this gun. This faulty gun, possibly. Exactly. And they really were very unhappy, and they wanted that legislation done away with. Polly, I have to say, I don't get it. We can make reusable rockets. We can, um, I don't know, self-driving cars. We can do all this stuff with technology. I think about Silicon Valley. I mean, aren't folks working on trying to make a smarter, safer gun? So it's interesting you mentioned Silicon Valley because that is something that came up. Silicon Valley actually looked into this to see if there was a way to fund these organizations. And basically what they found is that we are at a political... Fund what? These startups? Yeah, fund these startups. And they found that we're at really a political standstill. As Mm. long as this law in New Jersey is so controversial... 
it's going to be really hard to get anybody on board because what the NRA has said is we're not conceptually against smart guns. We're against them being legislated. But as long as this law is on the books, anyone that makes a smart gun, they're really going to be a target of the National Rifle Association and its counterparts as they don't want this thing on the hmm. market because that becomes the only firearm that can be sold in that state. And they worry that there could be copycats of it. So Silicon Valley basically didn't invest in a notable right. way. They looked at it, said, we can't do anything the here. The risk is too high. The risk is too high. Are we ever going to get any money on it? You know, in the article, we get into the return on investment and they yeah. didn't see it there. And the law is still on the books. The law is still on the books. They have, you know, had discussions about changing it, about altering it. But thus far, it is essentially the same law on the books. Wow. So standstill at this point? Yeah, it really is a standstill. And it's interesting as we see all this other technology ramp up. Yeah. This one particular technology is really stuck in the 90s. And a reminder of just how powerful the NRA is ultimately in its ability, as you said earlier, to really mobilize people and mobilize the most vocal uh gun owners against something and, and having a huge political influence. That's right. And full disclosure, Mike Bloomberg, owner of Bloomberg Business Week, Bloomberg TV, Bloomberg Radio, is a donor to groups that support uh, gun control. Good story. That's Polly Massens. Her story, a really important one that obviously has implications in the corporate world, in the political world, but also for consumers, for voters, uh, as we try and figure out where gun control goes from here. Yeah, exactly. And it's so interesting to see so much of the world disrupted, right? And technology has really improved so many different things, but it hasn't quite gotten to the gun industry, at least not yet. So, Jason, the cover story this week is certainly an interesting one and a relevant one for the times that we are living in currently. It's a new murder mystery coming up to a streaming service near you. It's called The Killing of Inflation. Netflix for nerds. <laughs> yes. uh, what I found so interesting kidding, about this. Sort of, no. <laughs> yeah, it's sort of kidding, not kidding. I mean, is it a murder mystery? Is it a horror movie? Yeah. We don't really know. Peter Coy, though, is here to tell us all about it. It's definitely a brain teaser. What's going on with inflation or the lack thereof? Inflation is either dead or dormant. We know that because the corpse or the body is lying on the sidewalk. Inflation used to be too high. That was always the problem. The central banks were tearing their hair out, trying to find ways to get it down. And they would slow the economy down in order to lower inflation and occasionally even induce recessions. And then there was a very brief moment where inflation finally got down to where they wanted to be. And they had about 30 seconds to cheer before then it kept going even lower. So suddenly the problem was it was too low. That's where we are now. And uh, the, their, the, the Central Bank of the United States, the Federal Reserve, the European Central Bank, the Bank of Japan are all like struggling to find ways. Why is inflation so persistently low and what can we do to get it back up to our target, which in all these countries is about 2 percent? All right. You're an economist. Well, you I'm studied not. economics. Actually, no, I'm not an economist. <laughs> well, you're essentially an economist. Right. Let me start over. Editor. You're an economics expert. You're an economics expert. Okay. I'm the non-economics expert here. Take us back to Econ 101 and help us remind us what inflation is, why it matters, and how it affects us in our daily lives. Right. Inflation is not just you know, gasoline going up or milk going up. It's a generalized increase in the overall price level, uh, the entire market basket of what we consume. Of course, there'll be variations within it. And it's usually an indication that there's some sort of tightness, like demand is too strong relative to supply. Um, the economy could be overheating because, um, you know, interest rates are too low, for example. And that's why the Fed would raise rates. Um, the problem we have—and and so what's the problem with inflation? But we want a little inflation. We want we, we want right? a little. So, but let's talk about what the what the bad thing is yeah. first. Okay. If inflation is high, it also tends to be variable. So it makes it hard for businesses to invest because they never know what kind of prices they're going to be able to fetch for their products. Um, the problem with low inflation—well, there are two really. One is that in case you hit a recession, it makes it very hard for the. Uh, Federal Reserve or whatever the central bank is to cut rates below the rate of inflation, which is what they want to do, you know, um, because if you're already so low, you can't cut much below zero. It's also bad for businesses because a little inflation sort of greases the wheels of commerce. 
For example, it makes it easier to hire people because you always know, well, if they don't really work out too well, I'll just won't give them a pay raise and that'll amount to a pay cut, right? Because they'll be getting you know, less. Right. Just in just keeping up with inflation is like zero pay right. increase. And so you tend to get more hiring when there's a little inflation, when there's no inflation at all. And, and, and so we're, we're the fact that we're below target is a lot is was not concerning so much in 08, 09, 10, 11, because the economy was slow. The mystery is why we continue to have low inflation, even though the unemployment rate is like below 4% in the U.S. Because you would imagine, history would tell us, keep me honest here, that at this point in an economic cycle, things are going well, people have money to spend, wages presumably are going up, companies are able to charge yeah. Higher prices, right? right. I mean, so right. all, all those baskets of goods and services that you referenced earlier, yeah. that's going up. That equals inflation. But it's not happening. It's not It's not happening. And so people have all kinds of theories. One is that uh, globalization means that American workers are exposed to foreign competition and they don't dare ask for pay rates because they know that, uh, you know, they could lose their job to China or Mexico right. or something. Another is that technology automation is threatening to put you out of work. Uh, another is just that the uh, economies become more efficient, and so that is a, a deflationary force. So it's just kind of a good thing if the costs of doing stuff keep going down. Okay, that's that's a good reason to have lower disinflation. Well, and the other thing is that there's. I mean, you talk to. Some great people. You talked to Larry Summers. You talked to so many different people. Adam Posen. You know, you referenced some of their thinkings about what's going on. I mean, one of it is, is that as people have gotten older, to that idea that people yeah. are staying in jobs, right? They don't want to take the risk. Yeah, right. Like I'm just going to stay where I am. If I don't get a raise, I'm okay with that. But I'm going to stay. This is the put. Japan theory in some ways, right? Of Japan is very much an aging society. Right. It's also a society that's. But been, we're an aging society. Yeah, we're be, we're. Just uh, kind of down the road behind Japan. Yeah. That's Peter Koi. I got to tell you, I love that guy. I I just love the way he breaks it down. And this was a story that we read in early draft, and I just thought, wow, this asks a lot of questions, but also does a really good job of answering where we may be going from here. It's a great read. Pursuits this week, it's a reminder that it's driving season. And so if you're thinking about buying a car, Jason, I mean, why not? Why wouldn't I be? How about a vintage one? And by vintage, I mean 20 to 30 years old. Well, that's more my speed anyway. (laughs) It's not like I'm going to go plunk a million dollars down for the latest and greatest Ferrari. But Chris Rouser, he knows it all. The whole pursuit section is at his disposal. So you open with cars. Tell us Mm -hmm. what's going on. So our car writer, Hannah Elliott, wanted to do a little guide to what we're calling the new collectible cars. You know, when you, oftentimes when you think about collectible cars, you think, oh, God, I've got to have a million dollars to buy, you know, 1970s Ferrari, 1960s. Um, and that's just not the case, actually. And, and the, the hottest cars right now, with the cars with the most interest and that kind of are growing at the fastest rate, are much lower priced. They're cars from the past 20 or 30 years. By much lower price, you mean what? Like you could get one for $15,000, $20,000. $20, and, you know, since those cars are younger, they're often in pretty decent shape. And the reason is... Is, is these cars were the cars that were like on posters and kids' walls who grew up in the 80s and 90s, and now those people have enough money to buy cars. That's their reference point. How did you guys kind of divide the section? Because you look at a bunch of different types of cars. Yeah, so um, we kind of tried to sort of narrow down five kind of hot different categories. So one of them, the first one is the Japanese. So, uh, you know, Japanese cars over the past five years, vintage Japanese cars, have gone up in price 39%, and that's way over the general market. The general market is about 24%. So that's a really hot category. And there's, you know, the Toyota Supra, uh, the Acura NSX, like lots of cars. A 1991 Acura NSX. Who would have thought? Yeah. I mean, that's a very cool car. That's like a supercar. And they've just, re- they, a couple of years ago, they started remaking the NSX because there is sort of a fondness uh, for that. And, but, it, you know, they don't have to be these crazy super expensive ones. There are also less expensive cars, too, that are popular. I mean, in some ways, this reminds me a little bit of, you know, I get into a car these days and I turn on, you know, I I hear a song on the radio and it's like, oh, 
this is on the oldies station. Yes. You know what I mean? Very so difficult. it's like what a classic Ouch. car is to yeah. a younger person is a very different thing. Yeah, and it's it's very interesting. And, you know, there's a lot of uh, cars that are a little bit overlooked. Like we have a category that's overlooked Germans. And those are cars like the Porsche Boxster, which is the, which is not their high. It's not a 911. Right. It's kind and of the lower made, price. Forgive me, made fun of it when it came out. It was like... you. Yeah, yeah, couldn't well, because it's know, like, oh, you couldn't, couldn't afford a 911. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And um, <laughs> But those cars are growing in price. And, you know, just in general, German vintage cars are growing in price. But, like, the BMW, uh, BMW Z4, which was never, like, the, the hottest car to be seen on the road, and right. that's also a good investment. Um, and then we even, you know, the most requested car on Haggerty.com, which is where you go if you want to uh, request an insur- a quote for insurance for a vintage car, is actually a Buick Roadmaster. What? Those horrible. I don't even get that. I'm so confused. <laughs> Why is that? Why? Yeah, you know, it's you know, I think it's partially because people have them. You know, people's moms right. have them in the garage, and so people are like, is this, "Could this possibly be worth something?" And right. then there's a nostalgia, like yeah. you know, Woody Jeep is remaking the Woody because yeah. they, you know, that kind of like wood side panel, old like ridiculous, va- you know, Chevy Chase and vacation yeah. cars are hip now. Trucks too. Yeah, and trucks, too. Trucks are up 15%. Uh, and they, you know, um, the most collectible truck is the uh, Ford Raptor, which is a very cool car. And you can get one, you know, like even mm-hmm. one from like 2014 is collectible. I have to say, just going back to the Japanese car, it's fascinating. We were talking about this before we got going, is just the influence of video games, right? That yeah, is so a impacting. Lot these, a lot of those cars, a lot of the Japanese cars feature prominently in video games and have for a long time in racing games and other games where that are that sort of exist in real world scenarios. So now younger generation, that's what they want. Yeah. And so that's like a cool they're, touchstone. They're, that's what they think is vintage. Right. Yeah. <laughs> they want that IRL, Carol. All right, <laughs> means from, in real life. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Very Yes. Wow, you're so cool. Thank God for I your know. teenage boys. So young. Um, from, so young. So from value and vintage cars to finding your way to Cambodia, which is kind of reshaping its identity when it comes to tourists and its people. Yeah, so, you know, in, when it comes to visiting Cambodia, everybody wants to go to Angkor Wat, right. which is legit one of the greatest things that you could see on planet Earth. Um, and, you know, a lot of people and go... And why is that? What, what's the attraction? It's this massive temple complex that um, that is overgrown uh, with... You've seen it in, in millions of pictures. It's in, like, the Lara Croft movies. Right, um, right. The roots are growing over it, and it's very beautiful, and it feels very religious uh, to go there. And when people go for, like, three days to walk around the temples. There's a lot to see there. Uh, I mean, it is very religious. I mean, it is. It's all, right? So, right. Even if that's not your, you know, even if you have a Western religion, it it still feels very Mm -hmm. holy. Uh, And our writer... is saying, you know, you you can go see that, and you should. But you should also hang around Siem Reap, which is the city Siem that Reap. it's that it's at, uh, because there's a lot of new hotels and new restaurants and uh, new art and design that's happening there that's worth investigating. Well, and there is a real focus on sustainability. Yes, yes, it feels exactly. like, it, which is obviously attractive to. We, just talking all about the kids today, like the millennial traveler and, and even an, an older traveler uh, seems more and more interested in, in that sort of experience. Yeah. Cambodia is at an interesting moment where tourism has helped uh, and stability in the government have helped the, the country solve a lot of problems. The people of Cambodia. Right? Yeah. The people of Cambodia, have, uh, when it comes to fresh, you know, drinking water and safety and um, other like very basic concerns. So now they're able to focus on things like sustainability, uh, which is more of a you know, sort of a luxury to worry about, and um, and the luxury hotels and stuff have really focused on that. So I think about you go to places around the world, whether it's Costa Rica or something like what you're talking about in Cambodia, and people are really thinking about okay, how do I improve, you know, the environment? How do I, you know, not leave a, a footprint, whether it's a carbon footprint or otherwise? And mm-hmm. I, there's a quote in this story from someone I think who's built or designed one of the hotels, and he said his personal mission is to ease poverty through hospitality. That's yes. pretty cool. That's Bill Bensley who designs and and runs. Uh, major luxury hotels yeah. throughout Southeast Asia. And he his goal is to not only um, focus on sustainability, so a uh, small footprint, like you said, um, but also to train uh, local workers and give people jobs uh, so it's like sort of a, a culturally sustainable project. But All these right. hotels are not cheap. 
No, they're not. They're not. <laughs> Sustainable and, you can't go, and you can helping the world. These are on the more expensive end, about $800 a night starting, which is a lot. All right. So before we get to the May flowers, we have to deal with the April showers. Yes. And, yes, and you know, moving around a city like New York or other major metropolises requires you to dress metropoli, in a certain metropolis. <laughs> metropolis. Um, requires you to dress in a certain way so you're not soaked when you get to your destination. You've mm-hmm. got some good tips. Yeah, this is, a, I mean, New York, living in New York is such an indignity, right? Like, you <laughs> you get on the subway, it's cold out, and then you're wearing your jacket, and then you sweat through your jacket when, on the subway, and you get <laughs> so out, and you're true. freezing cold. Uh, and one of the indignities, obviously, is the rain. And this season, it's like we constantly think about it. Um, and it's just very hard to dress for work and yeah. then also be exposed to the elements. So, you know, we did a story about some things that are, uh, you know, either for fitness or for everyday work, um, accessories and clothing that are, uh, that are really helpful and that look good. So, for example, example, we have this uh, vest by a company we love called Nobis. Um, it's a hooded vest, and you can just throw it on over whatever you're wearing. Um, and we also have these uh, Aquitalia Duke Oxfords, which are dress ah, shoes. Those look so are cool. That are waterproof, oh and God. you can wear them with a suit, yeah. and they don't look like they're made of rubber or anything. They're treated <laughs> leather. They're, the seams are sealed. Uh, they're $450, so it's an investment, but they're, I, I am super psyched, and I'm going to go get them. And you have a gorgeous umbrella and I gotta say I'm embarrassed to say how many times I've bought an umbrella from the guy sitting you know standing at the subway because mm-hmm. it's pouring and he yeah, wants he you know he knows your name yeah, yeah. yeah they, <laughs> see, they see you coming to like, umbrella, I'm like $20 yeah. for yes, the pretty exactly. lady and it'll yeah. last a week or so um, tell us too about in the critic there's a story about the good fight which is really a spin-off of the good wife that used to be on CBS network the good fight on CBS all access yeah CBS all access is a, is a streaming channel which I love I watch the Star Trek that's on it Um, And, you know, uh, Janet and Jordan are these two writers um, who focus on diversity. And and they came to me and they said, you know, actually, this show, which is in its third season now. And we're talking about Janet? Janet Paskin, sorry, and Jordan Holman. Okay. Um, And they said, you know, this show, it's in its third season, but it's kind of low-key, like the most feminist show on television. Mm. And it also is incredibly good at dealing with race. And it's about uh, this law firm in Chicago that's primarily African-American firm, but they also have begun hiring... uh, white lawyers as a as diversity hires. And that actually causes a lot of problems because, or a lot of uh, tension at work because the white lawyers are actually paid more than the black lawyers, huh. which even though it's a primarily, primarily African-American firm, you know, it's a struggle that everybody deals with. And they confront stuff like that really head on. And another thing that they really uh, address is uh, pregnancy discrimination. Mm-hmm. Um, hmm. And, uh, you know, and the whole plot of The Good Wife was about, you know, deciding to take your take time out of being at a law firm because you wanted to have kids and uh, which is what Juliana Margulies did in that right. show. Ripped from the page from the headlines I felt like the good wife yeah, was it really was. politics yeah. and men and women. There was a call and there was a call back to Spitzer <laughs> totally. and everything yeah, that was totally. going on there. And in the good fight somebody is faced with that decision and they make the opposite decision. She decides a single mother decides to be to stay on partner track mm-hmm. and they very frankly deal with the stuff uh, the decisions that she has to make and the conflicts that come in front of her and there's no easy answers. And so it's it's a really interesting show in that way. It's doing some great stuff. All right. So you're sitting down to binge watch <laughs> yeah. The Good Fight. But before you do it, you got to make yourself some pasta. Oh, yeah, make the pasta gotta while you're binge watching. There, you there you go. That's Pursuits editor Chris Rouser. And that wraps up the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. Thanks for joining us. I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Carol Master. Be sure to tune into Bloomberg Business Week Radio live Monday through Friday starting at 2 p.m. Wall Street time. And if you can't catch us live, get our daily podcast for the ride home at iTunes SoundCloud and Bloomberg.com. You can get this week's edition of the magazine. It's on newsstands now. We'll be back next week right here at the same time. This is Bloomberg.